The Livestock Export Industries Conference, Live Exchange, is being held in Darwin in November 2022 after being postponed for 12 months due to COVID-19. One of its great strengths is being able to get together face-to-face to to network and socialise, and organisers are now hoping international delegates will be able to attend, as well as producers and other members of the supply chain from around the country. Visit liveexchange.com.au for details and links to register. Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. This podcast is brought to you by Ariat Australia, the perfect choice for tough jobs. Ariat boots and clothing work hard, look good and are so comfortable, there's never a need to slow down. Visit ariat.com.au today. Dave Morrell is a Kimberley icon. Now, he won't like me saying that, but it's true. Dave grew up on cattle stations between Fitzroy Crossing and Halls Creek in the 1960s, and returned to the Kimberley as an adult to set up the first vet practice in Broome. He has been an instrumental part of the pastoral industry for over 40 years. There isn't much he hasn't seen or done. He's even treated exotic animals from around the world. As if being an extremely handy veterinarian isn't enough, Dave is also a brilliant bush poet. He recently released his first and long-awaited book, Johnny James and other verses. To start our conversation, I asked Dave to recite one of my favourite poems from the book. Uh, well, this is a poem called Walma Jarry Jimmy. It um, expresses a lot of experiences I had as a, as a kid and growing up with Aboriginal people. Um, I lived on stations and then I came back as a vet a number of years later and this sort of gives a bit of the history of the Aboriginals. Walmajari Jimmy. Walmajari was the name of Jimmy's clan. They'd roamed this land since time began. They knew every hill and waterhole. This land was part of their very soul. In recent years, the whites had come and started to build a cattle run, houses, sheds and station bores, roads and fences and station stores. Some of Jim's clan had joined the whites and lived in a camp near the homestead site. The men were part of the mustering team, a job of which Jimmy would later dream. But Jimmy's family had kept to their ways, doing what they'd done for a million days, hunting goanna and kangaroos, bush tucker plenty from which to choose. Jimmy's dad was tall and strong, his beard and hair were wild and long, deep scars cut into his arms and chest, a tribal man who'd passed the test. In 44 the year was dry. Kangaroos in short supply. He chased the roof for half a day through scrub and creek and breakaway. He broke his leg in a nasty fall. There was no one there to hear his call. His blood soaked into the black soil clay 
neath the burning sun he perished that day. His family waited, starved and weak. With hope abandoned and near replete, they struggled into the station base, began life anew at the white man's place. Jimmy thrived in his situation, learning English in short duration. He learnt the ways of the guttier man, becoming a stockman his ultimate plan. Schooling was done by the manager's son, and they'd laugh and play and make their fun. They'd ride their horses to a river pool and dive and fish in the water's cool. Brothers they were as the seasons changed, learning and growing and views exchanged. Boarding school came the manager's son. Jimmy started work on the station run. At breakneck speed he'd chase a bull, jump from his horse, give the tail a pull and throw the bull to the ground. With leather straps its back legs bound. His riding skills noted far and wide, much to the manager's pride. Top rider at many a buck jump show, his name revered where the stockmen go. With the spin effects gone to seed, walking cattle he'd take the lead. With his shoulders back and head held high, he fell part of the earth and sky. With his stock horse snorting and sniffing the air and he in the saddle without a care, he felt like a king that had just been crowned but his weekly wage was just two pound. The laws were changed round 64 to give the black man more. Now strong grog they could drink all day and for work performed get an equal pay. In our God's eyes all men the same, but the truth just ain't that plain. A hundred folk with the daily needs, only twenty to perform the station deeds. Their profit figure was non-existent, so their fund request made the bank resistant. The pending decision made the manager grieve, because he was forced to make them leave. There was wailing and screaming and protests loud. They were scared and beaten and cowed. They hit their heads and smote their breasts till blood poured down their chest. The blood was mixed with tears of dread, as from their land the group was led. Jimmy's body was ripped apart. Something had entered and torn his heart. His body was numb to a rigid state and he cursed his terrible fate. The native reserve was a soulless park. In station life they worked till dark. Now they sat around all day, their desperation on display. Alcohol had never crossed Jim's lips, but out of boredom he took some sips, and he found it dulled his burning pain, so he hit the bottle again and again. Diabetes, claimed Jimmy's wife. Medicines had helped her life, but she died from a complication when a leg was taken and an amputation. That only doubled poor Jim's grief, and he drank more grog to seek relief. With his pain piled layers deep, he was drinking all day till he crashed in sleep. They found him one morning by the walking track. Flies and ants had covered his back. There was no record of his birthing date, but I reckon Jim died at 38. His sons were there to mourn their loss, and I shed a tear on Jimmy's cross as I remembered our childhood fun, because I was the manager's son. As the wind caresses the spinifex plain, the grass is swaying to each refrain, and the rising sun makes the country gleam with a breathtaking beauty that is seldom seen, and the hills in the distance have a shimmering haze as the Walmajari weep for days, and Jimmy's spirit is free to roam in the country he called home.
Dave, that poem is, it just gets more and more powerful every time I hear it. I remember the first time I heard it on another podcast you did, and I had no idea that you were the manager's son, and that was the biggest plot twist at the end of that poem. Tell me about your time growing up. Oh, well, I um, grew up on cattle stations, Louisa, Bohemia, between Fitzroy and Halls Creek in the Kimberley in the early 60s. Uh, and so in those days, it was all Aboriginal stockmen. There, there, there were obviously a few, some white stockmen, but this whole um, part, the Kimberley pastoral industry and the territory in the Queensland pastoral industry too probably were built on the, the labour of Aboriginal stockmen. And they were stockmen that were living in their traditional country, working in their traditional country, and riding horses and mustering cattle were the sort of jobs that, you know, they enjoyed doing and, and seemed to come naturally enough to them. Um, so that was the environment I grew up in. I think we had 80 or 100 people on Bohemia, of which they are nearly all Aboriginal people. And as I said in the poem, there was probably 15 stockmen and five or six women that helped my mother with, a, you know, baking bread and cooking and washing and all that sort of stuff. And they were my big brothers and big sisters. You know, they'd take me hunting and walking and, ri- you know, riding. And um, uh, so that was the environment I grew up in. And from my memory, there were some very happy days. And from my memory, you know, a lot of people will query this and question this and say the Aboriginals were sort of slaves and they were underpaid and certainly they weren't paid the um, the normal wage. I think they had very little understanding of money, but whether that can justify not paying them properly, I, I won't really go into. But... um they worked the, tr- the traditional country and I remember happy times. And I think for most stations and most Aboriginal people, there were happy times. But there were obviously some situations where Aboriginals were abused um, and that'll happen wherever there's, you know, mankind's in a situation that he can abuse. Uh, but And then I went away to high school and I went to university and became a vet and I came back to the Kimberleys, I think in 78, the mid-70s and, and um, started a vet clinic in Broome and I had to service all the stations because there was a program to eradicate tuberculosis. So there was a lot of travelling to cattle stations, TB testing cattle and I found the Aboriginal people that I grew up with and on Bohemian Louisa, Schmiler Thompson, Ringer Gordon, Alec and Biddy. One fellow we called Hitler. And those, I think Schmiler was still working as a ringer on Cherubin, but they were all drifting into town and most of them had become alcoholics and sad relics of their former self. And to me, that was an incredibly sad, sad thing. Um, a proud and happy people that would become sort of um, lost and desolate and um yeah it was quite a depressing thing so that thing that's what i wrote the poem about that's a long explanation (laughs) no it's great because there's not many people that we've been able to talk to on this show that have this experience 
you mentioned in the poem that there, at some point there was a, a great shift in the landscape and how, you know, the wage change for Indigenous people and when you came back as an adult, the landscape and the people had changed a lot. What was that shift that happened? Can you talk to, so for people that may not be familiar with what happened and what triggered that and how it all came about? Well, I think the um, the equal pay, the equal wages, which was, a you know, a legislation in Parliament um, was one of the triggers. And I'm not saying that shouldn't have happened. Like, the d- people are doing the same work and there's quite a legitimate argument that um, advantage was taken of Aboriginal people. But at the same time, as I said on the station I grew up on, there was a hundred odd people and mum and dad used to take care of all their, their, their food needs and their medical needs and all their needs, whereas only a small percentage of them worked and they had a token wage. So that was one change when the equal pay came in. I think at the same time there was <clears throat> a number of um, probably white people who didn't like the fact that Aboriginals were on a token wage and thought they were that was a form of abuse and I can't argue with that. And so they encouraged them to leave the stations and go into town and, um, and that movement was encouraging. We'll build your houses and you'll have houses in town. So a lot of them did leave the stations for the fact that one, the stations possibly couldn't afford to pay the equal wages and two, they were being encouraged by outside forces to leave what the outside forces probably thought of as abusive situations. But they went into town. There was no accommodation. And they had nothing uh, to do of substance, whereas in stations they were proud men, they were ringers, they were good, uh, you know, they could ride in in um, rodeos and, and win events, they were top stockmen and they were proud, they looked after their families. In town there was alcohol, there was fast foods and all the things that we've seen proliferate um, from that are still around today, like uh, diabetes, heart problems, alcoholism, child neglect, all those things. But your your original question is what triggered it. So I'm saying the equal wages and there was encouragement from outside forces to leave the the white uh, managers or the white station owners who were um, taking advantage of them. That's uh, the two main things that I can think of. So Aboriginal communities as we know them today, so from my understanding, having lived up here in the Kimberley, Indigenous people often either live, if they live out bush, it's in a community or they live in a town. Back when you were growing up, so it wasn't common, like did communities exist? There were people living in town, but most Aboriginals when I was growing up, that I can recall, lived on cattle stations that were in their, you know, tribal lands, you know, their traditional lands. There were also people that lived in town, but my recollection is that most people, and I can probably only speak clearly for the Kimberleys, lived on, on cattle stations in their tribal country. And at the end of the season, they'd go and walk about and do their traditional uh, ceremonies and their traditional customs. And my dad would know where they were and he'd take them out food, you know, over the wet so that they could they could have their walk about and do, and do their... Um, you know, go back to their roots 
and their tribal ways and go through those traditional ceremonies and those things were respected. It's certainly a world away from the situation today and and there's not one, you know, it is a spectrum, but how over the last 50-odd years have you dealt with, you know, seeing this change and not being able to, I suppose, do much about it? Oh, well, it's made me very sad. And when I wrote that poem, I, I know I cried on and off for um, a couple of weeks thinking of putting myself in Walmajari's shoes and, and, and seeing him wrench from his tribal lands, you know, into a, a, a town situation where, uh, you know, where I guess they had despair. And, um, and present day, it's moved on to kids being involved with, you know, the, the horrible drugs we have today. And, and, and I think there's become a, you know, an anti-whites movement. So it's, it's moved on to stealing and, uh, you know, stealing cars and burning them, stealing anything you can and, um, and justifying it as a result of white colonization. And there's possibly some roots in that justification. But yeah, it's been a very sad process. And I think we're only part way through it. And to see those proud men and women and intelligent, smart people living in the land that, you know, they'd lived on for thousands of generations, to see them being reduced uh, in the way that they have been is a very sad, a very sad thing for me because I knew them as different people. So an act, and, and it is an act, the, the legislation which was supposed to empower these people, in a way, one of the side effects was that it did lead to a lot of disempowerment and disenfranchisement. That's that's right. But on the other hand, I'm not saying, you know, um, yeah, I'm people not- should have equal wa- yeah, wa- absolutely. wages. I'm not, I'm not um, saying that we can have one group of people treated differently, but... Um, I think that was a, a big contributing factor, yes, yeah. in my opinion, and others may, you know, say I'm wrong. An unexpected outcome, absolutely. So tell me more about what it was like in the Kimberleys in the 1960s. And so you were in the East Kimberleys? Uh, no, between Fitzroy and Horse Creek, so which sort of, we'd call I guess, that. Central? Yeah, maybe Central yeah, Kimberley. It's yeah, it's funny. These days I only ever hear people say East or West, but then when you th- talk to somebody that's right in the middle, you're like, where do you draw the line? <laughs> yeah, where, where do you draw the line? Um. Oh, well, there was dirt roads, uh, road trains were just starting. When you went out mustering, you took pack mules and, you know, you, everything was carried with, with the pack, you know, the, the pack mule team and, um, uh, there was a lot less fencing. They were mostly shorthorn cattle. There were big stock camps of, as I've said, Aboriginal people and, and, and some white people. Um, so the cattle would be, and there was less, Fencing and yards, so cattle would be gradually collected and, and, and held at night by, by riders. And they'd be brought into coach, you know, quieter cattle that you'd already mustered and the, the new cattle would be brought into the coaches and eventually you'd, well, in those days, the, um, the cleanskins would be cut out on horses and roped and taken to bronco panels, but, you also, that's when there weren't yards, you know, so they'd be roped on the open flat and taken to, and the cars would be roped by a man riding a bronco mule or, or a big strong horse and they'd be pulled to a bronco panel where they were branded and castrated and earmarked. But 
that or the cattle were taken to a yard where they had a bronco panel, but they were sim- similarly they were roped and taken to a bronco panel and processed. Whereas these days, obviously, we've got helicopters mustering the cattle, sometimes always the whole way to the yard, or sometimes into a group of men on horses, and we've got steel yards and hydraulic crushes, and um, the processing is a lot faster. In those days, the we we sold bullocks, four and five year old shorthorn bullocks, and they went into the meatworks at maybe you know five hundred kilos, four fifty to six fifty kilos, and they mostly went to America for hamburger beef. And I think as the situation changed from light from um, the Kilmaining being at the local meatworks to live export, prices jumped from ninety cents a kilo to a dollar forty a kilo. Um, and you, because you carried a lot more male cattle, because you carried them for a longer time until they're old enough to sell at a heavy weight, there was less female cattle, so there were less cattle generally. Uh, the numbers were down; there were less cattle branded. Yeah, it was an older, older ter- turn off of cattle. Uh, so f- fairly primitive, but on the other hand, I think it was a lot more fun. Um, you know, you could say it was like Wild West, but people took pride in their professionalism and the way they did things. Um, you know, you might have only gone to town three or four times a year and that was a big deal. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's giving you some sort of description. Yeah, absolutely. What would be your favorite memory from your childhood growing up on cattle stations? Wow. Yeah, that's a big question just to make you narrow down to one. So I might rephrase that. What is one of your favourite memories? Well, probably mustering cattle. I had a horse called Darky Green. Well, I wrote a poem about one of my favourite memories. I'll I'll give you a little story if I can. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, Well, we lived in Bohemia and in those days, unless you had a, a veggie plot, which most stations did have, all your, if it wasn't meat, it came in a tin, you know. Uh, we had powdered milk and uh, fruit and veggies came in tins. And and uh, in the, in a poem I write, it said, One day my mum gave voice to her concern. Now listen here, my husband dear, since we have a thousand cows round here, don't you think we could get fresh milk to drink? So... Um, Dad, in order to avoid a row, said he'd draft off some milking cows. But these are rough and ready shorthorn girls, not your Jersey or your Frisian pearls. And so that really happened. Dad said, okay, I'll, I'll, we'll get some uh, milking cows. So he drafted them off. But no one had ever milked cows before, and we, we put them through this old crush. And in the poem, I said it was a circus to behold. You know, the man that did the milking scored a broken thumb. The milking bucket got kicked to kingdom come. And all that really happened. And the, the ladies from the camp came down to see the show. They wailed and laughed, you know, and, and screamed with laughter. Um, anyway, we brought these cows in for milking cows and we decided to keep, I think the first time we put them through, we might have got a quart pot full of milk or something. But we decided to um, keep the the milking as a, as a sort of a, a an everyday event, a ritual. So myself and this old... Aboriginal man called Sundown Ellery, 
was our job to bring the milkers in every afternoon. And in the poem, I said, we made a handsome pair, sundown mounted on his mare, and me looking pretty cool on Billy, my old mule, because I was only allowed to ride a mule, mostly. I did have a horse sometimes. but And so sundown and I used to bring these milking cows in, have to muster them up every afternoon and bring them in to get milked. And I don't know how long it – they wouldn't have been very far from the homestead. It probably took us a couple of hours. And then – as we're doing that, he'd often give me Bible lessons about that, that Christian bugger Jesus living on Halls Creek and about Moses, how he'd stop the Fitzroy River and the righteous he'd deliver, you know, into the promised land. And, and I took all that very seriously and I'd go home and tell mum and dad and I don't think they probably took it quite as seriously. But, um, there, that's a fond memory I have. Uh, you know, I've also got fond memories of just mustering cattle and, you know, riding a horse, rushing through the scrub, trying to bring, you know, the scrubbers into the mob. And, and I remember, but I don't know who that was, one old man from the, the camp taking myself and my brother down to the, the creek, you know, and, and walking through the spin effects and the trees and, um, he pointing different things out to us. Uh, you know, that's another fond memory I've got. Who do you think was the most influential person in your childhood? Probably my father. What can you tell us about him? Oh, Dad was a tough, uh, tough sort of a bloke. He ran off to sea when he was 14, I think. He was in the Norwegian Merchant Navy. Uh, I think he got shot and knifed. But... But he'd been a drover. He'd worked for a fellow called City Buyers, which a lot of old people might know. He was a drover in the Barclay Tableland, and Dad had done a stint driving with Sid Buyers, and he'd turned into a pretty rough, good rough rider, I, I think. I, I understand he won a state rough riding championship once. But, but he'd always wanted to go back to the north and, and manage stations, and, um, yeah, he was a hard man, um, probably had trouble showing affection. Um, it was more respect in those days than affection. Um, and well, I do write a poem in my, in my book called, um, Dad. And it's, it's the first verse is Dad died an alcoholic. And it saddens me to think of wasted years and bitterness that brought him to the brink. So my mother died of cancer and, and, uh, Dad was working a gold lease, but, um, yeah, he, 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 drunk to excess but he loved the station life and um and he got on great with the aboriginal people and 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 you know they they got on great with him but in those days pay was very i think he was on a really minimal pay and us kids were getting to high school age and he didn't have enough his pay wouldn't have been su- sufficient to put us through school because there was no high school here so we actually went to northern near Perth for high school. And um, so he ended up getting a government job as a stock inspector when they were in the throes of eradicating uh, pleuronemonia. And that was much higher paid than the station work and he was still involved with cattle and horses and that gave mum mum and him enough income to, to send us away to school. I mean, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship which helped a bit. What was it, do you think, you say he's the most influential person in your, in your life, in what respect? Like, if you could say he imparted one thing on you, what would that be? Oh, work ethic. 
um, setting the example. I mean, I end up becoming sort of, you know, school captain. And he said, Dave, the one thing you have to do is, is set the example for people when you're in that position, you know, and, um, he always had words of, uh, of, of wisdom. Um, yeah, his work ethic, setting the example. He was also a bit of a larrikin. Maybe that stuck with me. I mean, in some ways I was a bit scared of my dad, but. Um, I guess those are the things that uh, that I remember. So you went away to school, and when you came back to the Kimberley, you were qualified as a veterinarian, and there was obviously a bit of time in between. Did you always know that you wanted to be a vet? Was that influenced by your childhood? I think, that, yes, that was definitely influenced by my childhood because when Dad became a stock inspector, he had a lot to do with the government vets. But to tell the truth, I'm probably like every other kid when they get to 16 and 17, they, they don't really know what they want to do. I obviously had a, you know, a, a few neurons that were connecting, but, uh, you know, I didn't know if I wanted to be an ag scientist or an economist and I wanted to be a ringer, really. <laughs> I was still enchanted by the station way of life. And I mean, dad said to me, Dave, look, you can always be a ringer, but you've got this scholarship to go and study vet science and the government's going to pay your expenses. Um, why don't you try that? And you can, if you don't like that, you can always come back and be a ringer, but you're not going to get many more chances. And he, like this, and he obviously saw the value of education and, uh, yeah. So when you came back in the late 70s as a vet, were there any other vets up here, whether that be large or small practices? There was no vet practices. There was a fellow called Dave Bradley who was a vet in Kununurra and he would fly, which Kununurra is a thousand k's away. He'd fly down to Broome a couple of times a year and, and do some um, small animal work. Uh, and there were the government veterinarians who were mostly involved with station work, TB eradication, uh, disease problems on stations, uh, and they would also do some small animal work when they were called on, and you know, normal what we might call private veterinary work now. But no, there was no vet clinic in Broome, or the closest one was Kununurra, and to the south, uh, probably when I first came back. I think there was one in Port in uh, Port Hedland. I don't know if she'd set up then or not, but I think there was one in Port Hedland. Were you all overwhelmed at the prospect of setting up from scratch? And not being, I'm assuming you're sort of young, uh, mm. so you wouldn't have had, you know, maybe gone out and spent however many years under somebody else, and and even generally a lot of people start the careers like that. But you've come up here, obviously knowing your craft, but. There's kind of no one else to bounce ideas off and you're starting a, something from scratch. Well, yeah, well, I was a bit scared to be a vet. I, I, I'd graduated and um, I'd, I'd put off working for a while. I built a yacht and did some other things. Um, and But then I went and worked for a veterinarian, Athel Staden in Esperance for six months uh, and he sort of offered me a partnership. But I said, no, I'm going north. I had some friends I'd built a yacht with and they were in Port Douglas and I was actually going to – Join them. They had a big block of land at Cape Tribulation, but I'd lived in Broome as a kid, and my wife and I were driving through, and people said, "Look, why don't you set up in Broome? We need a vet, and um, you know, you've been here before." And 
So, yes, I, d- I just said, oh, what do you think, Helen? And she's, she said, oh, whatever you want. And so I said, well, give it a go. We couldn't find a place to live. Someone Eventually someone rented us a caravan in the caravan park. Um, I'd operate at night what, with Helen holding a torch sometimes. I used to go around to people's houses and operate on their kitchen tables. Um, I didn't have any accounting system, and it might have been, you know, the red-haired lady with the big boobs owes me 50 bucks or something like that. Um, so it was very primitive, and, and I, I guess I was a bit of scared of, of the responsibility of, uh, of being a vet, but I, I was lucky enough that Broom had a big need, and maybe they were e- overlooked any of my um, technical deficits pretty easily. And around about that time, the government brought in the TB eradication program, and I was given, because there was no one else here, I was given the job of um, TB testing on a number of cattle stations. What is TB? Oh, mycobacteria and tuberculosis. It's a, it's a bacteria that infects cattle. Um, it used to be a huge killer of humans. Uh, probably before the turn of the century, but that was more human tuberculosis. Bovine tuberculosis is a different um, a bacteria, or slightly different, more specific to cattle, but humans would get uh, cattle tuberculosis and pasteurising milk was one of the things that sort of stopped that. So it's, it's a bacteria that it's a very insidious thing. It slowly spreads through a herd, through a respiratory contact, maybe at drinking points, and it eventually gets into the lungs or, and the lymph nodes and debilitates the animals. Uh, and they can die from it. Also at the time when America was taking our hamburger or our beef for hamburger beef, they wanted assurance that we were trying to, you know, get rid of TB. Uh, and our export works, you know, were accredited such that no sort of animals that had tuberculosis were, had meat taken from them that went for export. Um, so yeah, it's a bacterial disease that is very insidious. And if left unchecked, it could reach levels of 10 and 20% in the herds, which would have a huge, a huge effect on productivity. So, aside from the impact on productivity, which is obviously detrimental to the people who use cattle as their source of income, with America wanting the beef to be TB free, does that mean that if you in, if you ingest meat from an animal that has TB, that you could get sick that way? Is that how people would catch it? That's how people probably thought, but that's not actually true. I mean, the TB lived in the lungs or the glands, and. and you could probably get it from ingesting part of a lymph node that was infected with it, but 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 it's really readily seen. It's it's basically a a pool of pus in the gland or the or, or the lungs. So no, you couldn't really get TB from eating meat from an animal that had TB. But it, it's certainly not a very good public health message to say, oh, it's okay to eat you know any of the meat from these animals. And there was certainly a um, a public health uh, initiative and drive to, to to eradicate it. I suppose there's a, there would just be a huge perception issue anyway. Nobody wants to eat something that's been sick. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the government is this a federal effort to to eradicate TB across the country? Yeah, yeah. It was a huge federal effort. 
hundreds of millions of dollars were involved. It took about 20 years, and we eradicated TB, as far as we know, unless it pops its head up somewhere, but um, we did eradicate TB. Careful what you say. Uh, Yoni's popped its head up in WA the other day, so... Yeah, 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 which is <laughs> quite quite closely related. Yeah, I was wondering with the, you say with the impact and the, you know, uh, how it affects the cattle with their productivity if it is similar to bovine yoni's disease in that aspect, that the main impact is a, just a loss of productivity. Yeah, well, bo- bovine yoni's I think more affects the gastrointestinal tract and, and the cattle, um, they scour and get very, you know, weak and, uh, yeah, lose condition that way, whereas... Oh, Cattle with tuberculosis could, for all intentional purposes, look, you know, quite fit and healthy, except when that really overtook their lungs completely and, and then they, you know, they, they couldn't breathe properly and that's when they became weak and debilitated. But although they're similar, uh, they express themselves in different ways. Do you think there would ever be a campaign to eradicate yonis Australia wide? It seems from my understanding that because we were the last state to really kind of have a hard line with it, that everyone else is just kind of accepted to live with it. Well, that's, I'm not an expert on Yonis, but that's, that's my take on it as well. I think a few states did try to eradicate it and, and they've never really succeeded. So they've just decided to vaccinate and live with it. And I guess WA's about to face those decisions and I imagine they'll fall into line with the other states. So what was involved in TB testing? You said it went over 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, what would a, a what did that program look like for you, especially being one of or the only cattle vet up here at the time, aside from the government vets? Oh, right. Well, as you know, we've got um, stations here, mostly around a million acres, carrying between five and, well, 80,000 head. But, you know, a typical place is probably a million acres carrying, let's say, 20,000 head. Um, and... The government had a rough idea where the TB was because the cattle would come into the meatworks and you'd know, so, so the, when they were slaughtered the meatworks, oh, this animal's got TB when it'd be then, then condemned and you'd know, well, that animal came from Lioner Station or Anaplane Station. So they had a rough idea where the concentrations were, although it was sort of endemic through the Kimberleys, there were some pockets that, that didn't have TB. So the government, would work out a program with the station and the station would uh, basically ring me or the government vet would ring me and say, oh, Dave, can you be at um, GoGo Station on um, next Monday? They've got a 1,000 at in um, Mona Yard to um, TB test and could you be at uh, Mount Pierre Station on Tuesday? And so I would uh, go to GoGo Station and they'd have the cattle and they'd run them put them in a race, which is a, you know, a long, uh, a long thing where you could put animals sort of only one wide and they might be 10 or 15 or 20 in a race. And I'd inject them with what was called tuberculin. So it was a, you had a special syringe that carried exactly 20 doses and each dose was 0.1 of a mil and you'd inject that into the caudal fold of the tail and they might have between 200 and 2,000 lined up for you to inject. Then, the, then they'd hold those cattle for three days in a holding yard 
or a, you know a cooler like a small you know maybe five or ten or twenty acre fifty acre um, paddock and the government would subsidize their costs by um, I think it was five dollars a head or something to uh, so they could buy hay and look after the cattle and then I'd come back in three days and check every spot that I'd injected and feel if the animal had reacted to the tuberculant I'd injected and if the animal reacted they had a lump it might have been as big as a marble um, I had them as big as eggs but sometimes they were very slight lumps um, maybe not much bigger than an almond or a pea and so I would say well that's a reactor and we'd pull that animal out and at the end of the day we'd shoot all those animals and that could have been two animals the most I ever pulled out I think anaplanes once we pulled out 120 but there were some places we'd would pull out 50 and 60 at different times. And then those animals would be shot and post-mortemed and then their glands sent to the ag department to, for, for culture to confirm that, you know, that, that their reaction was a positive reaction and it was TB. Um, and then you go into the next station and it was, you know, a pretty continuous roll from one place to another. And then because the stations early in the early days were still a bit isolated, every manager, you know, was happy to have someone come along and so they'd all want to drink beer or rum with you and, um, you know, you'd pretend to them how fit and wealthy, you, happy you were when you got up in the morning, you do your TB test and you go on to the next station and they'd want to keep drinking rum and beer with you too. Um, so there was a fair bit of that went down and that would go on from when mustering began in March, April till, depending on the wet season, till probably November. Would there have been some sort of compensation for the animals that had to be shot or did people have to cop that on the chin? No, I think the government did compensate for that. Um, and towards the end of the program, they brought in other other things that, that, that helped um, because some um, – of the stations, the cattle were still pretty feral. Often when they mustered on horses or even even with helicopters sometimes, they might only get 90% from that area or, you know, 92%. So towards the end, the helicopter would go behind the area that they'd mustered and then they'd shoot anything that was left behind. And then if you had persistent infection that, you know, several years of testing hadn't got rid of, then the government would buy that whole all the cattle from that premise or that area or that paddock, and it might be 500, it might be 2,000, and they would buy them at market prices and put them through the meatworks, you know, to – because occasionally there would be animals that had the TB and for various reasons wouldn't react, and so it didn't matter how much you test, you didn't get those those residual uh, positive reactors out, but by – Destocking was the term by destocking the air and put them through a meatworks, they'd get rid of them. And also the ones that they didn't get in the muster, the ones that were left behind could have been carrying TB and just spreading it to the ones we just tested when they were let back into the area. So shooting behind with helicopters uh, was another, um, uh, another step that helped get rid of it. That must have been incredibly difficult for the station people. On the one hand, you've got an asset which can be replaced. You know, you shoot an animal, get compensated or replace it. But similar 
I suppose it may be a bit different to when we had the floods in North Queensland a couple of years ago and people lost a lot of cattle, they didn't just lose an animal that had to be replaced. They lost years and years of genetics. Were there any good genetics in the Kimberley back in those days or was it you weren't losing too much in that sort yeah. of area? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and, and what I didn't say just before, yes, the government did compensate, which was the, your, your question. They'd compensated for the reactors and they compensated for the destocked animals and the ones that were shot behind with a helicopter. Uh, towards the end of the campaign, yes, properties were starting to get better genetics. They were buying bulls. There was more cattle control. Genetics were improving. We were selling cattle to the live export and um, mostly Indonesia initially, and Malaysia, but these days, you know, there's Vietnam and Israel. There's many more countries buying cattle for live export. So that, but those countries, because of their heat and humidity, they wanted uh, more heat resistance. So they wanted more Brahmin cattle. They also didn't want fat cattle because a lot of them were sold on the wet markets on the street. Um, so cattle, so stations were bringing in Brahmin cattle and Brahmin bulls and, and culling their less product, productive shorthorn cattle and spaying cattle. And if you'd got to a certain level of herd improvement and all of a sudden you had TB there and you'd put, you spent a lot of money on bulls and a lot of time into this developing your genetics, tailoring it for the export market. And all of a sudden you had to destock those animals. Well, yeah, I imagine you'd be pretty pissed off. Um, and the government, they would pay the market rate and sometimes above for the cattle, but that didn't, that didn't really compensate for the effort you'd put into herd improvement. Absolutely. And, and yeah, it takes years and years. Um, with the decision you make today, you don't see the, the repercussions of it for three or four years until that animal Yes, yeah, spot on. on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's dead right. Yeah. So I, I shudder to think of how many kilometres you did back in those days, but I, from my understanding of you in, in recent years, since I've known you, is that it's probably not all that different to you. I think you've probably had a lifetime of just racking up. If, I wonder if somebody could go and count how many kilometres you've done in the Kimberley. It'd probably be a world record. Uh, I've, I know these days, um, you know, I'm sure – especially because you have such vast distances to cover and we have the privileges of, of modern motor cars, you know, maybe a, a, is it a 200 series you get to – These days similar? I've got 200 series. Yeah. In those days I could only afford, you know, ch- cheaper cars. Yeah, so I'm wondering what did you use for all those kilometres back then? Oh, crikey, I had a, a, a XB Falcons and XY Falcons and um, – Subarus, I remember, you know, we had Subarus for a number of years and I had a couple of vets doing the testing with me and we had four little Subaru Brumbies. I know I personally rode off, I think, uh, 14 cars in that period and and I know I've lost my licence 15 times and I reckon I, look, uh, you know, I reckon I've done at least 3 million kilometres, um, you know, in the time I've been here and, I'm not trying to exaggerate, and I'm not. not I, I, it'd be pretty close to that, I think. That which would be sort of a hundred thousand a year for thirty years, and I, these years I don't do a hundred. I've been here about forty-five years, but I'd probably do a bit less. So I, I don't think three million would be far off the mark. No, no, knowing knowing your schedule and the schedule of your vets, and you know these days there's still not that many vets up here, and and even if there were, you still have to 
you know, you're not getting any closer to people. Stations are still as far apart as they were. So I just, yeah, wanted to wonder what you were driving back then. Was air conditioning a thing? And, and there were some parts of the highway weren't sealed back then, were they? Oh, yeah, there was lots of dirt roads and you'd get stuck behind a road train. You couldn't pass it and you'd just sort of shut your eyes and pull out. And Once you got past the back of the road train, the dust was a bit clearer, but you didn't sometimes know if there's a car coming towards you or I remember one day going to pass a road train and there's a the bull bar's fallen off a car and it's right in front of me and you, you know, had to whip around those things. And, um, yeah, there was lots of dirt roads and, uh, well, there was air conditioning, but generally I didn't drive air-conditioned cars but crikey's nowadays i've got the 200 series and the air conditioners on and i enjoy all those comforts but yeah it was more of a battle and maybe i made it more of a battle than it needed to be but um uh, that's the way it was you've definitely earned the creature comforts of today that is for sure i feel very privileged that i've only ever had aircon cars with aircon Aside from the TB testing, you said you started off doing small animal uh, surgery and consultations in Broome, uh, and then uh, uh, the TB testing was a big part of your career over those 20 years. I understand that there was a whole other area of animals. You know, when we talk to vets, we say, you, you know, you're a small animal vet or a large animal vet, but you also became an exotic animal vet during that time or oh, a yeah, little bit yeah. after. That's right. Yeah, well, that was an interesting period. Um Lord McAlpine came to Broome and he, the McAlpine family are, um, very wealthy in England. They do road, you know, road construction and uh, build a huge, uh, buildings. I, you know, I, I don't, don't really know all their businesses, but Lord McAlpine was the, um, the treasurer of the Tory party and he was, he was Lord McAlpine. He'd, he'd had the title from his grandfather and he came to town. And he fell in love with Broome and he started buying a few houses and renovating them. And he was struck by this idea of Australia, the Ark, um, um, with the, you know, general unrest and whatever in Africa. He believed a lot of species were going to come extinct. So he thought Broome would be an ideal location to breed some of these species you know, some of them rare and endangered and maybe some of them less rare and endangered. So he set up a, a zoo in Broome. It was 150 acres. I think only about half of that was developed while I was working for him. He had um, a couple of kilometres of elevated walkways and uh, he sent me to America to work, not work, really learn, I suppose, in the San Diego Wild Animal Park and the San Diego Zoo and other zoos in America. I worked with a bird vet in Chicago because he ended up having every Australian parrot except one or two species, I think, and there, there was a lot of birds there. And with birds, you have to – well, with with a lot of parrot species, you have to surgically sex them because you can't tell if they're male or female morphologically, so you have to knock them out with um, an anaesthetic and look inside with a fibre optoscope to see if they had testicle or, or ovary so you could pair them – to reproduce and he also i went to england and we he, he charted a i think it was a seven look i don't know if it's a 707 or a 747 around the world and it was packed with zoo animals we had priswalski horses a sitatunga red lechwe nilgai nyala adax gemsbok pygmy hippos cheetah 
Um, Kudu, Sitatunga, I might have said. Anyway, heaps of these, and we picked them up from Marwell Zoo in England and, and uh, Whipsnade Zoo. And the plane went from Stansted Airport to Canada to Hawaii to New Zealand to Sydney to Perth. We dropped some animals in a couple of those locations, but most of them ended up in Perth and then subsequently ended up at the Broom Zoo. And they all bred. I think everything, maybe the kudus didn't breed while we were here. They subsequently bred, um, in the Northern Territory, Tipperary, but everything else bred quite successfully. And, and Lord McAlpine was right in his, um, thesis that, that the climate was perfect and, um, these animals that were becoming extinct in Africa could be successfully bred here. And so where the zoo cafe is now and where there's all development, I used to go through there with a dart gun. You know, might have to dart a, a kudu to trim its hooves or animal, one animal might have been sick and, you know, these animals you have to dart with a, with a tranquilizing dart. Um, and I learned a lot about birds, which are probably all forgotten now, but, um, yeah, they were pretty exciting times, um, and interesting times and a lot different from t- the boring job of TB testing and, um, the zoo was pretty successful, but Broom had a small population, and I think when his father died, he, Lord McAlpine didn't inherit, and maybe the finances weren't unlimited, and anyway, the zoo sadly closed. It was going for seven or eight years, but I, I'm guessing at that, maybe ten years. But That just sounds like the most wild adventure ever, flying around the world, picking up wild animals and bringing them back for for a zoo. Like, that's actually the trip of a lifetime. Yeah, it was a real buzz in the plane because the plane was just packed full of these boxes of animals and there was the pilot and the co-pilot and the navigator up the front and there was myself and a couple of zoo keepers down the back and they were the only two sort of seats in the plane that were occupied and all this urine was flowing in from the animals are flowing up and down the plane and, and we had to keep it really cool to minimise the stress and yeah, it was quite a buzz, yeah. Those horses that you mentioned, the how did you pronounce that? Przewalski horses. Yeah, they're from Mongolia, aren't they? I think they're from Mongolia, yeah. in the Russian area, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I remember I did an assignment on them at uni, uh, no, uni, in high school in year nine or ten, and I had to make a big poster, and I've always, because they're like one of the, that was like the beginning of all horses or something like that, they're the oldest horse from memory in the world, like. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah, that's and you got to see them in person. That is so cool. Well, we bought quite a few of them, but they didn't come to Broome. They ended up, I think they ended up. Uh, we dropped them off at Sydney, I think. Wow. I wonder if their descendants, are, if they ended up breeding, and there's still some floating around Australia. Oh, imagine they did. Yeah, that would be incredible. What was the most? So, aside from maintenance uh, and and assisting with the breeding. Obviously, you would have had some, uh, some, well, potentially. I mean, on the one hand, a zoo is a fairly controlled environment, but I'm sure you had some injured or, or sick patients come across your, your operating table at some point. What was the most unusual patient that you had from the zoo? Oh, well, the pygmy hippos, they've got a mouth on them like a big as a cave and their, their teeth are like chopped off broomstick handles. And for some reason, I had to knock one out once to get blood samples. And, and when you knock them out, they ooze this stuff out of their skin, skin 
like brill cream. I don't know. People would know what brill cream was today, but it's stuff that people put in their hair, you know, men put in their hair like Vaseline. To, anyway, they used this Vaseline-type stuff out of their skin and they didn't breathe like they'd take a breath about once every 20 seconds and you weren't too sure if the animal was alive or dead. And they had these, they've got no hair and they've got these big fat necks and, and you know, you're trying to get blood out of them. Or quite, that was quite difficult. So um, I wouldn't say I operated on a pygmy hippo, but knocking it out to, to get the blood sample was a bit of a challenge. Now, it must have been wild. It's hard enough, well, maybe not for vets that do it all the time, but to draw blood from animals, say like a cattle, to, you know, to find the vein when you know where it is. But imagine you've got this animal... And how are you supposed to know where the veins are and what's the best place to clip blood? You know, it's not your regular production animal that's been done a million times that people have learnt about. This is yeah. Well, there are zoo, there are books about zoo animals that tell you some of those things, but you know, it's one thing to be told. Oh, well, you you know, the jugular vein is sort of here. It's located in a book, but to, you know, another thing to actually uh, find it and get the blood sample sometimes. I suppose also knowing the right amount of anaesthetic to administer. For sure, um, yeah. Did yeah. you ever have anyone wake up on the table a little bit early? Yeah, and there's a lot less control because, you know, you're doing this from a dart gun initially. Once they're down, you can control it a bit. But, um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, by overdosing, we used to use Immobilon and Carfentanil. And Immobilon, if you scratch yourself with Immobilon, if you just get a little bit in your system, as a vet, you're dead. And there are quite a number of vets in England with that committed suicide with Immobilon and you always had to have somebody beside you. There's a reversing agent, reversing, and you always had to have somebody beside you trained in how to give you a reversing agent in case you accidentally got some of the drug in your system because vets have accidentally and deliberately died from using Immobilon. And I also used a drug called Carfentanil that they were using in San Diego and that was even more... Um, it's sort of toxic. So, uh, yeah, and if you weren't judicious about your dose rate, you could easily kill animals. I'm just imagining you doing something to a pygmy hippo and it waking up. Hippos, like, they look lovely, but they're particularly vicious, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. 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 Also, I'm just thinking, imagine being the person who developed the reversing agent like imagine what you know testing and how many failed tests you'd have to have before you got that <laughs> recipe right. I've never thought about that. Yeah, that would be not the funnest job to um to yeah. to be working on that. So from small animals to large animals to exotic animals, you've certainly worked across I guess the whole spectrum, but you're known up here first and foremost for being <clears throat> the backbone of or well, one of a part of the backbone, I know, make you one of the vertebrae, I guess. One of the ribs, something important of the pastoral industry up here. Even today, there's only in the Kimberley three, you know, kind of permanent vets, cattle vets, you, Bryce, and Peter Letchford, and there's locums that come in and out. Um, there's even less in the Pilbara. This is where you've spent your life and you've had an incredible impact on the injury, uh, on the injury. You had an incredible impact on the industry. I was wondering if you'd be able to share your poem with us called The Ringer. Ooh, so we can talk about some of the characters that you've come across. Okay, it's a longish poem, and and, and I'll, I'll back off from saying I'm the backbone of the industry. <laughs> That's right, it's my uh, job to make, yeah. <laughs> but as a vet, I'd like to think we've been pretty integral in the industry over, over the, the period. The Ringer, okay. Um, the Ringer is based, loosely based on 
a mate of mine, Johnny James. I haven't said it for a while, so I'll see if I can muck it up. The ringer. He leaned against the barroom wall. His frame was straight and tall. He was good-looking in a rugged sort of way, though the whiskers poking through were showing signs of grey. He had a free and easy laugh like a man without a care, and his foot was loosely balanced on a bar stool that was there. His face was darkly weathered from years in the sun, but his eyes, they fairly sparkled like he was looking for some fun. I was working as a barrister for a law firm called McAllister when my mother had a heart attack and died. Well, the sadness wouldn't leave me, no matter how I tried. And I had a gloomy feeling life had no real meaning. I was sorting through her things, the clothes, the books, the rings, when I came across some letters that were loosely tied in strings. They were old and faded yellow and they were written by a fellow. In guilt and fascination, I read the whole narration. He said, I love you still more than any ever will. He said, I love you more than any love that's been before. He said, my wayward ways I'll change. I'll come at once and meet you and a marriage we'll arrange. He said the wet had finished and the season had begun and they'd mustered up the horses and had a bit of fun. A horse had fallen on him while mustering on his pl- on the plain and his arm was badly broken, but now that it was mended, it was back at work again. He said the nights were clear and he thought of her a lot. And when he did, he shed a tear. He finished off the letter with the signature of Bill Henry. Well, I couldn't shake my grief and my despair and the thought that death makes life seem so unfair. So I took a leave of absence from the courtroom in the bar and I headed for the bush in my city motor car. And the thought inside my head kept going round and round that I'd find the author to those letters I'd found. I thought I might recover if through him I could discover some meaning and some purpose to my life. So I asked the agents and the stockmen, the truckies and the bushmen and others that I'd met along the way if they knew this man, Bill Henry, and his whereabouts today. I met some men that knew him and more that knew his name and they regaled me with stories that told of growing fame. Sure, I knew him well. He was mad as bloody hell. But where he is residing now, I really couldn't tell. He was head stockman on Delamere for the years that I was there. Bill and me got yarded one night in the lock-up in Halls Creek. The coppers, they objected to us fighting in the street. We went bull catching for a season, a place owned by Peter Reason. The bulls were mad and pretty rough. By Christ, that man was tough. Took five weeks to track him down, searching round the stations and searching town to town. And now at, la- now at last I'd found him, the man I've just described, leaning against a barroom wall in a pub called Catherine's Pride. I went over to meet him. My heart was in my mouth. G'day, I'm Bill. I've just come up from south. He gave a grin from ear to ear that filled the room with cheer. I'm Bill too. Here, have a pew. We'll sit and have a beer. We talked about the weather and if climate change was real. I asked him if he knew he'd win the Melbourne Cup. And he said that cattle prices looked like going up. I asked him if he had ever married. And he said he nearly did so once, but she'd left him with a child that she carried. 
I was on a drinking spree, and she wanted to be free. I wrote her once or twice, but me writing's not too good. And she sent me Christmas cards for a year or two at least. Then we lost contact completely, and I haven't seen her since. There'd been some other women, but none of them compared to the memories that the, none of those compared to the memories that the two of them had shared. And the friendships always faded as the women got more jaded. And in his present state of mind, he didn't think of women every day and the heat your body feels when they look at you that way. I asked him how he came to be a, a stockman in the north. He said his mother loved him, but she was looking after four and his dad had up and left him and things are really pretty poor. The paper had an ad for stockman wanted at a station in the north. Experience, no prob. We'll teach you on the job. So he'd gone to Lansdowne Station and he'd worked there like a dog. It was six months in the stock camp living in the swag. The food was beef and damper. Other rations came occasionally. They bought tobacco, jam and tea. They mustered and they drafted. They branded and castrated from dawn till after dark. From a bronco mule they'd rope a beast and pull it to the bronco panel where it was processed and released. The stock camp was all native men and everyone a friend. They were young and quick and fit as hell. They'd step off and throw a bull before you'd ring the bell. They'd cut its horns and mark its ear and change it to a steer. Pack mules carried all their gear. Their ropes were made from green hide from a bullock that they killed. Hobbles made the same, so the station wasn't billed. He left lands down in 68 and travelled into state. He worked around the territory and contract mustered VRD. He drove road trains from Noel, for Noel Bun time from Alice Springs to Proserpine. Then he stopped a bit to think and took another drink. You know, the times were changing past. Those things are in the past. It's helicopters now do all the work, and a man is just a yard hand jerk. And the stock camp is all backpackers from Norway, France and Crete. They're as nice as anyone that anyone will ever meet. But as for working cattle and working horses too, they simply haven't got a clue. You know, ringer's just a word for something times pass by. It's a notion of a way of life that progress has let die. I asked him if he thought his life had been complete. He said, I've lived my life the way that I wanted. I've rode the wildest bulls that a man will ever see. I've mustered cattle in the Gulf and Kimberley. I swum the Fitzroy River when it was swollen in a flood. I've had too many fights and lost a lot of blood. There's times I thought that I would surely die, nearly perish in the desert till some rain fell from the sky. But though I've beaten everything that was ever put before me, my life has always yearned for love and friends and family a wife to share my life, some kids to come and see me when I'm getting old and dreamy. You can fight until your knuckles bleed. You can go for days without a feed. You can work until your body breaks. You can give your best and all it takes. But none of that will ever fix a heart that sadly aches. The thing that we are looking for is deep within our core. That night I went to bed, but I couldn't sleep for the words, he said. 
Some tears rolled down my face at first, then the dam of grief within me burst. The tears washed down like a cleansing rain, and then the sobs from deep inside me came. I couldn't say he was my dad, nor I the son he wished he had, because I knew that he'd feel cheated, and feel his life had been depleted from missing out on a family's love in the years since I'd been born. So I headed for the city with my heart strings badly torn. But meeting him had strengthened me for the rest of my life's journey. The the energy that you say that you recite your poetry with, it's just I know everybody listening of like I know how much people will will enjoy this to, but to be here for a live recital it's just such a privilege dave tell me about what spurred you on to write that piece well this might sound a bit um arty farty or you know you know me sort of overstretching myself but what i wanted to and it sort of came from johnny james my friend who was a tough hard battler and he used to say to me dave all i want is a good woman but he I don't think he was ever going to get a good woman because he he didn't know how to relate in that way and he was too tough and hard. So I wanted to convey the um, the situation or the feeling of a man in the bush that could conquer everything but all he wants is love and fulfilment and he's sort of emotionally bereft which is which is the case with a lot of stockmen you know they're hard tough men and they drink too much and or maybe they don't they drink what they want to drink and they and they've worked the lands maybe less so these these days when we've got um backpackers and we're close to town and transport's quicker but the people that live 60 70 years like that you know um in a hard, tough way, but a lot of them, all their life, they wanted love and fulfilment, as we all do. And I was trying to convey that uh, dichotomy. Can I use that word anyway? Uh, you know that sort of contrast. No, that's a perfect fit. The word dichotomy. Johnny James must have been a very important person to you, or a significant person in your life. He's, he graces the front cover of your book, and the book is called Johnny James and Other Verses. Tell me about Johnny, a little bit more about him, and how, how did you first meet him? Well, I'll give you the. I'll give you. Can I give you the first verse of of, of meeting him? Absolutely, please do. John, Johnny James. I, I, the poem is about his whole life story, but I won't won't give the whole poem, but. A cigarette dangled from the corner of his lip, blue smoke curling from his brightly glowing tip. He was barefoot when I met him, and even now I can't forget him. He was about six one. his fly was half undone. His clothes were rough and worn, he looked like he'd been working from the first day he'd been born. Some sweat was trickling from his chin. He had a mischievous and cheeky grin. Johnny James, he said, thrusting out a calloused hand, and so began a friendship I really hadn't planned. And it goes on to say I was visiting his place, checking cattle for TB. So I was, went there for a TB test and I met him and 
and we became mates. Um, you know, John's was, John was mates with lots of people, and he was a hard, tough character. I think he made life too hard and tough for himself, really. And um, and at that stage, he had a property called Yakamunga, which Yakama is work, and Munga is Aboriginal for bread, so it was sort of work for your tucker. And he worked at, well, when he had his family with him, they helped him, but he worked at, after they left, he worked at, by himself. He'd come into town, he'd get drunk, he'd get into fights. I remember one morning waking up when he stayed at our place and he's curled up in the bottom of the shower with the water still going, you know, from the effects of drinking. Um, and he died in a helicopter accident. He was a bull catcher. He's a very successful bull catcher, and I talk about that in the poem. He made a lot of money catching bulls, and with that he bought um, uh, what became Yakamunga, um, and he had a drive and an energy that you had to admire. But he was he was abusive. As I said, he got into fights. He'd drink too much and become abusive and, and obnoxious. When he'd had a few beers would say oh, oh johnny's putting on the fur coat which was our sort of way of saying he was going to turn into an animal shortly so watch out but i admired his energy and drive and enthusiasm he had a t- determination to get a station and he got a station he'd been a horse breaker and he'd been a bull catcher and he'd been a fencer and he he got his own his own which was a pretty mediocre station it wasn't a great property um, and he worked it himself. And to me, although there was many contrasts in him, and he, he Bob was no means an angel, and he had lots of uh, personality defects. Many of the old pioneers of the Kimberleys were like that, and they had contrasts in the personality, and um, they drank to excess. And he sort of represented the spirit of people that helped develop this country. You've had such a wealth of experiences so far in your life and it's it's very special that you're able to share them with people but the way that you share them through your poetry and then the way you recite your poetry it is I I don't I'm not articulating it correctly but it is it's just really special. When do you think you wrote your first poem? I remember writing my first poem. Maybe I'd written little ditties on and off through my life. But I was leaving town and Terry Fleming, who's a cattle buyer for ILE, his car was at the entrance to the uh, the road to their yards. And and I, I said, oh, I wonder where Terry's gone. You know, oh, Terry's gone a bind and we don't know where he are, which is a bit of a, a thing with a banjo Patterson talking about Clancy of the Overflow. And as the day went on, I said, oh, first he's gone to Mount Pierre, then on to Napier. And, and I talked about cattle buying. And and by the end of the trip, I'd had a poem pretty well in my head. And I got home and wrote it all down. And and I think there was a couple of swear words in it because it wasn't for publication. It was just a poem for the blokes at the yards. And they seemed to like it. And I said, gee, that didn't turn out too bad. And then I had all these poems from my childhood obviously waiting to come out. And um, and so then there was a little period when I, you know, got a f- several poems down, some of them long, and the initial ones they didn't rhyme and 
and rhythm, it didn't have a proper rhyme and rhythm to them. Uh, and I didn't think that mattered as long as they told a story. But I have learned that people like to have a proper rhythm and rhyme and, and some discipline to it. So, uh, you know, the later poems are more like that. But I think it's really about storytelling. And if they haven't got, when you read them, if they don't have a rhythm or rhyme, but if you can recite them and, and give them some life, you can sort of give them a, some rhythm and rhyme. Uh, anyway, the first one was about Terry Fleming, the cattle buyer. And I kind of um, kept going from then. And, you know, and you have periods when you write a couple, three or four or five in a year, and then you might have a time when you don't write too many. Were you nervous to share that first poem with the boys in the yard? Not really, because I didn't take it that seriously, and it was a bit of a send-up of, uh, of Terry. But it was also trying to encapsulate what was involved in the, you know, say, tr- trying to an order's gone out to fill a cattle boat and Terry's got to go and get the cattle and the cattle boat's waiting to be filled and I was trying to get the the story of what actually happens, uh, you know, in the poem and plus a bit of fun. So, um, no, I wasn't nervous, no, but I didn't take myself very seriously either. As time has gone on and you've become quite well known amongst our community for your poetry, has that changed? I mean, now you, you have a book out, do you do you find yourself caring more about what people think? Um, well, now if I write a poem, I want it to be what I would consider a good one and one that people will appreciate. Um, and I take more attention into the, you know, the rhyme and rhythm. But I also try and do poems that talk about station days or poems with meaning. I, I, I do some funny ones and I've done a couple of crude ones. Um, but yes, I'm more conscious of of producing something that could possibly be published now, and you know, I'm, you, you might in posterity, I might get judged by the poem I write. So I'm more conscious of being a bit more professional about it. Not that I'm professional, and some poets might even laugh at what I do. But um, no, I think I was just wondering, you know, if you ever you know, put too much stock into what other people think because you are so accomplished. Sometimes it's interesting you come across people that are so accomplished in what they do, but on the inside, you know, that the, there's a different level of confidence, but your poetry is incredible. So I, I hope that you um, don't take anybody else's feedback and, and to turn any more heart than you did when you first started out, that, you know, the main thing is is that you're enjoying it. And if other people enjoy it, you know, they can kind of take it or leave it. So... Yeah, yeah, I'm enjoying it, and, and I like to sort of spread the story of, of, of the Kimberleys in the north. Where – do you have a, a certain place that you like to be when you write? Not really. Uh, they might start off when I'm pre-testing all day and you get some ideas and and then you try you get a verse and you get another verse and, you, and you're trying to pre-test and memorise three verses and, um, and then you come home and um, – you know, start to scribble it down. I did have one poem, Riley's Yard, that sort of came to me in the middle of the night and I had to keep getting up writing verses down. I don't know why that happened. But, no, I haven't got one favourite place I try to write. But often they occur on the road, the ideas, you know, on the road driving out to stations or coming back or or why you're um, – or someone might just say a line that you say, gee, I could do a poem around that. But, how has it been consolidating your work into this incredible hardcover, you know, very 
it's a significant book. Like it's a decent size and it's big and it's shiny and it's very impressive. Well, I guess you could also the, use it as a weapon. <laughs> on the one hand, I could say I've managed to use pictures and, and stories about the poems to make 30 average poems look a lot better. Uh, oh, it was fantastic doing the book. Uh, and I, and if it was just a collection of 30 poems, I don't think it would have turned out as well. But, you know, so I've written a poem, The Bull Catcher. Um, well, no, people that aren't from this area don't know what a bull catcher is and why there is a bull catcher and what they do. So then before that poem, there'll be three or four pages saying how we had Aboriginal stockmen and then the equal pay came in or other things and they went into town and cat stations weren't run properly so the bulls bred up and when the bulls breed up they ride the cows and kill the cows and that's a real disaster so then they needed a bull catcher to catch all these rogue bulls so that might take three or four pages to explain all that and when you put all the poems and the explanations together it ends up being a history of the Kimberley from from say when the McDonald's left Goulburn to take up fossil uh, until the present day and and I try with like poems like Walma Jerry Jimmy try and talk about, and I hope sensitively because um, I would hate to say anything that Aboriginal people found disrespectful, but I try and talk about their displacement and and what's changed on stations, like the type of cattle and how the stations have worked, and uh, and uh, in the old days, like why we had Aboriginal massacres, not not justifying them, you can't justify them, but talking from trying to show both points of view as to why those things, those terrible, terrible things happened. So putting all the poems and the stories together gives a history of the Kimberley from from when it was, you know, the first pastoralists came here. And then I've managed to go to the Batty Library and get f- photos that, and some of the poems, I have the real photos of the real people so that if you're reading it, it's real. Like, it's not, they're not made up people. Like, there's one about Dave Ledger, the galloping pom. Well, there's a picture of Dave Ledger and, you know, there's one about the, the ringer that I said and there's pictures about ringers doing what ringers did in those days, you know, and um, they're real pictures um, that, that – and I think the three things together, the stories, the poems, the pictures – in my egotistical way, I think might have turned out to a, a reasonable book about the Kimberleys, the pastoral side of the Kimberleys. I really wasn't expecting the stories. So I opened the book to read it and obviously I've heard your poetry before and know that you're very a, a talented writer, but the stories themselves, I didn't realise like you've got, I mean, you could write a regular, well, I don't want to sound like long smoke um but you could write a book as well like the way those stories are written is just as um well done as the poems themselves like it's not like a you know this is what happened blah 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 like the the stories i think are equally good as the poems oh thank you so i'm sure this is just going to be dave merrill's first book (laughs) and the second book we'll we'll be waiting for it may may or may not have poetry in it because we know you can write anything I'm also thinking that Central Station's been going for eight years now. We've gotten about four blogs out of Bryce, which was, you know, he's like your little protege. Uh, and all this time, you could have been writing great stories for us, Dave. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's all right. We know where you live now. 
So to start wrapping up, I just have a few questions I would like to ask you. Um, you've had a, an incredible career so far. It's certainly, certainly nowhere near finishing. Um, but what is something you wish you'd known when you first started out? Wow, what's something I wish I'd known? The impo- wow, this, the importance of my wife and family. I always put work ahead of family. And that has been to my detriment. So I wish I'd had the understanding of the importance of my wife and my family when I first started out and wasn't so hell-bent on just working all the time. Um, I am still with my wife, only just, and, and make my kids, we communicate well now, so I haven't blowing it in that area but I think I went very close to blowing it and um, yeah, the, I wish I'd uh, placed more value on on that what else um, oh well I'll leave it at that no, that's all right. thank you so much for being so candid with that answer the thing I love about being able to ask people things like this is that for all the people listening when you get a really honest candid answer like that that's something that's going to hit home with other people rather than something like oh I wish I'd known how to change gears in my car properly so I didn't have to replace the clutch four times. You know, it's something that people can really take on board and apply to their lives. So thank you for your honesty. Um, as I've mentioned a few times, you are an incredibly talented vet and poet. Uh, you seem to be good at many, many things, Dave. I just would like to know, to make all of us feel a little bit better, what's something you're not very good at? Uh, well, as I just said, um, I – probably wasn't the best father or the best husband in the world for, for a number of years. But on a on a ah oh. Can you see Well I lost an eye early in the piece and um Really? And I've never played a lot of sports since then, you know, in a car accident. Do you- so I I guess I'm not a you know, at school I did sport but not not a great sportsman. Did you just say you lost an eye? Yeah, yeah, my right eye hasn't got a lens in it. Oh, but the eye itself, because I was like, it doesn't look like a no, glass eye. No, the eye's there, but it doesn't work. Oh, yeah. okay. That's, I was like, it doesn't look like a glass eye. It looks very real. Yeah, no, no. It's it, because it's, it is a real it can't eye. can't focus. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, what can, oh, there's probably <laughs> lots and lots of you, things I can't you a, do well. Are you a there's crap singer? Can you cook? Like, just give us something here, Dave. <laughs> no, I like cooking. I can't sing for nuts. Oh, there we go. And, and I can't draw. I can't draw. God, if you started, you know, with your poetry, especially if you started writing songs and then you came out and released an album, I'd be like, all right, I'm done. I give up. I give up. And looking back at your story so far, what would you say is the biggest lesson that you've learned along the way? If you want to develop a business, you need to, you know, it takes hard work. You need to be there when you say you're going to be there, you need to do the job. You need to do the job at the price you say you're going to be it, and you need to respect the people that you do work with. Uh, and if you do that, your business will grow. On a personal level, um, we all need to spend more time, loving time with our family, our you know, our wife or husband and, and children. Charles Darwin University's Agricultural and Rural Operations team focuses on North Australian production and business systems, offering current real-world knowledge and experience by delivering both full qualifications and industry-required short courses.
Courses at the rural campus are designed to develop the skills required for work on a North Australian beef cattle property or in the top-end agricultural industry, while providing a sound knowledge base in the pastoral and or agricultural industries. They have dedicated staff who specialise in workplace training and assessment and recognition of prior learning. They will come to you and they service some of the most remote areas in the Northern Territory. Find out more at cdu.edu.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia. All of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations, and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.